0: What a great passage. Uh, Well, have you ever been in a position where you've done something and someone else uh, just has not recognised the significance of what you've done? Uh, I did this uh, on Friday. Uh, So we found out there's been a camp in here over the weekend at Crewe, which is great, but they weren't leaving till 3, and obviously here we are starting church at 4, and we usually take a few hours to set up the sound desk. Uh, Rob's on holidays, Nathan, our MTS, is doing the sound desk with Josh, first time on their own, and, and Nathan asked, I don't know, he says, I don't know if we're going to be able to plug it all in in time. I said, what, it's only a few cables to plug in, and, and he didn't give me a dirty look, he just kind of deflated. Um, and, and I think it was because I, I had completely underestimated. Uh, what it takes to pull off a live recording—not only just so that you guys can hear in the room, but so that everyone online can hear in live, real time—and and I'd underestimate. I haven't—I hadn't recognized just how difficult it's not just oh here's Liam with his couple of chords, cluck cluck, oh it's done. No, it, it's quite—it's it, quite a big deal, and I'd underestimate underestimated it. Uh, I've seen it at uh, sort of festivals or shows too where, I don't know if you've been to field days where there might be a blacksmith uh, working away, uh, showing his wares, and someone comes in and will look at a fire poker and say, "Ah, oh, it's just a bit of metal, I'll give you five bucks for it. A- and the blacksmith sort of oh, deflates, you, you don't realise, that's taken me hours and hours to twist it, to press it, to, to hammer it out, to make this beautiful piece of craft and someone's just coming off at five bucks. And it's just deflating because someone hasn't recognised the value. They haven't responded properly to this person that they've done. Um, Now today we'll we'll be thinking about that, about how we might respond to what Jesus has done. What's an appropriate and proper response to to what Jesus has done? And our question is: Is will it will it match properly? Will our response to what Jesus has done will it be an uh, appropriate response? Or will it be like that person at the field days who says to the blacksmiths, oh yeah, it's just a lump of metal. I'll give you five bucks for all that hard work and skill. Uh, Now that might seem like a bit basic, uh, a bit of a basic question, but before you tune out, before you just admire the view and sort of tune me out, it is absolutely crucial that we we answer this question correctly. Uh, I'm I'm married. Uh, I'm incredibly blessed to have been married to Lucy. Uh, And now if I've... So I've come home, and I don't realize, but Lucy's been, she's thought, I'm gonna cook Liam his favorite meal. You know, it's like some 20-step some process. So she's made lasagna or something, but she's handmade the pasta sheets and rolled it all out and, you know, I don't know, gone and hunted the cow and minced the beef and whatever it might be. She's been laboring over this meal for maybe days, and I come home, I'm hungry, I eat it, I'm like, yeah, thanks, love, and then back to my phone. Oh, can you imagine? Uh, it, it, you, you, could, you could almost see her wilt just in your mind's eye. If you've gone to that effort to do something special, to put in so much effort for someone, and they just sort of, you know, it's gone and they're, yeah, well, yeah, yeah, thank you, whatever, they, they haven't responded appropriately. It's, it, there's consequences, there's relational consequences if we don't get this right. Or if, uh, real story, she's uh, specially organized my shed for me, a bigger job than you might think. Uh, And I'm like, oh, yep, thank you. It's just not enough. It's not a reaction, it's not a response that's in the right measure uh, to what's been put put up. what's been done. But but if I did notice, if I did recognise, if I did recognise uh, what effort had gone in and, and responded appropriately with great gratitude, oh, thank you so much, that shed's been driving me crazy. Look, I'll cook dinner, why don't you put your feet up or just hang out with the kids. Uh, if, if I recognise and respond with gratitude, uh, do you know how that feels when someone recognises what you've done? Uh, especially, and you see that again with the, the craftsman, um, the furniture maker or the blacksmith, and someone says, wow, th- those little s- petals on that steel rose you've woven into that fire poker, that, that must have taken you ages. Uh, and I tell you if, you, if you're ever at a field day or something, or just with any craftsman or tradie, and you notice what they've done, you notice the detail and you comment on that, you'll see them light up because you're, you're recognising, wow, that you've recognized a real skill, you've recognized time that it's taken, the response is appropriate and and it's beautiful when that happens, when the response, when the recognition happens and the response is appropriate. Uh, Now that's exactly what we're going to be thinking about today uh, as we come to Jesus, as we think about responding to this crucial thing that Jesus has done. Uh, and today what we're going to be seeing in that passage Ellis just read is three responses to the resurrection of Lazarus. Now, last week, in last week's pa- passage, we saw Jesus incredibly raise a man from the dead. Uh, and he wasn't just a bit dead, he was four days dead. Um, so well outside the time frame where he might have just, you know, gone unconscious and lowered his breathing or something. He, w- he was starting to decompose. And jesus rose him from the dead now this guy lazarus he's got two sisters it's a public resurrection people have seen it all the jews who had come out to mourn lazarus to support the sisters had seen it and that's where we picked it up in today's passage and we see three responses to this remarkable resurrection Uh, first we see the response uh, of the pharisees uh, and then we see the response of Judas, and then we're going to have a look at the response of Mary. So that's that's where we're heading today. We're going to look at these three different responses, and then think about uh, how we might like to respond to Jesus. What's an appropriate response for us to make to Jesus in light of what He's done uh, for us? So first of all, uh, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are a group of religious elite They're the spiritual powerhouse of the day. They have influence, they have respect, they have position, not just in the synagogue, not just in their church, uh, but they have position within the community. They're respected members of the community, the religious elite. And we pick up their response, uh, really from verse 45. So these Jews who've seen the resurrection, they've come to visit Mary, they've seen what Jesus did, the resurrection of Jesus. Many of them believed in him. But some of them, didn't believe. Some of them uh, went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, which is this spiritual council. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that you spoke up, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. So here's Jesus, he's doing miraculous signs. Notice they didn't quibble about the signs, they actually authenticate the signs. Here's a man, they say, doing these signs. We, we're not going to quibble, we, we've got proof that he raised a guy from the dead. So they, they don't argue over the evidence. They say, yep, okay, we accept that we've got a guy raising the dead. And their conclusion? Let's kill him. It, it seems just nonsensical, doesn't it? But... It's nonsensical, but it's it's kind of understandable because the Jews were in a precarious situation uh, for many years, and uh, the Jewish nation had been under some sort of overlord, and the current overlord was the Romans. Um, So while they had their nation, they had a sort of Jewish puppet king who, as long as he did what the Romans said, could basically rule and the Jews could worship. They had their temple and they were on this sort of really tense relationship with the Romans where they sort of got to run Jerusalem. They sort of got to run the temple. They got to run their sacrifices, but they're always nervous that if they stirred up too much trouble, in would march the Roman armies and just wipe them out. And in fact, that's what, what happened. Uh, in 70 AD, they eventually Rome did wipe out Jerusalem, raise the temple to the ground. So they are nervous. So it's a, it's, it's a nonsensical reaction. Here's a man raising people from the dead. Let's kill him. It doesn't make sense, but it sort of is understandable. I can understand their emotions. They're, they're scared. They're scared that, that Rome will notice and will come in. And they're scared that they will lose their place. These are the religious le- the leaders. They're scared that something is gonna, the apple cart's going to be pushed over. A- and we're at the top, and we don't like uh, being at the bottom. We, we just want to leave it as is. They, so what they do is they ignore the evidence. In fact, they, they try and bury the evidence. Uh, later on in chapter 12, I can't see if that's... Yep, that's on the screen. Um, is that verse 9? Where are we? Back, sorry, thank you. Um, meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, as they raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Back one more? Thank you. Okay. Um, so, so they say, look, let's, let's bury the evidence. They're not only saying, let's refuse to believe it. Let, let's get rid of it. Uh, And again, it doesn't really make sense. If he's raised him from the dead once, surely he can do it again. But no, no, let's just get, it's the attitude that says, nothing you can show me will change my mind. I don't want to believe in this Jesus. He's not my Messiah. I don't want him to save me. Thank you very much. Nothing you can show me, and we've got someone raised from the dead. Nothing you can show me will change my mind. Nothing can convince me. So that's this first response to jesus raising lazarus and in the next scene of the story we have two more responses and they're a little bit different um, but we'll pick it up there in chapter 12 verse 1. six days before the passover jesus came to bethany where lazarus lived whom jesus had raised from the dead here a dinner was given in jesus honor Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Now, he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You'll always have the poor among you. You will not always have me. So we're going to look at Judas's response here, uh, first of all. Uh, and, and Judas is a really interesting character in these accounts of Jesus' life because as we read the Gospels, uh, up to this point, Judas looks the part. Uh, the disciples, they'd went out two by two, healing, casting out demons. They were there handing out the bread at the feeding of the 5,000. thousand, wasn't? And the 11 did that, and Judas sat on the side because he was a thief. No, no, he was part of this. He was in Jesus' inner circle. Uh, we, we have no reason to believe he wasn't performing miracles. We have no reason to believe he wasn't part of all that went on with Jesus. As one of the twelve, he would have been at the seat of honour along with Jesus whenever there was a feast on, whenever Jesus was reclining. Judas looked the part. And he started well, didn't he? He, he followed Jesus. Jesus called him and he followed. He would have given up things to follow Jesus. Um, but all the time, on the inside, he's really just serving himself. Uh, he's doing what he wants to do. That, that attitude of, I'll do what I want when I want, was always in Jesus, waiting for a chance to express itself. That attitude was always there, and when he had a chance to express himself, hey, Judas, can you look after the money bag? There's a chance. That selfish attitude came out. Later on, when he had a chance to express it, when he, he had a chance to sell Jesus out, he did. He did. That attitude was always there. Uh, To start with, he looked right. He looked like he was a real follower of Jesus. But when it came to a choice, when it came to a choice of, will I do what's right and honour my role as money keeper? Or will I take some for myself? Well, it became clear. And it comes out verbally here, it comes out verbally. Sure, he disguises it by pretending he's concerned about the poor, but both Jesus and, in hindsight, John the author know that this is not the case. He doesn't really value Jesus. Yes, he's a thief, but the deeper issue here is that he doesn't value Jesus highly enough. Uh, He values Jesus enough to follow him. He values Jesus enough to stay with him while it's good, But as he looks at Mary, and she's pouring out on Jesus' feet a a whole jar of perfume worth a year's wages, let's call it $60,000. The whole lot poured out at once, emptied onto Jesus. In Judas' mind and heart, it is clear, Jesus is not worth that much. That value is too high for Jesus. How much does Judas value Jesus? Well, in just a couple of days, he's going to value Jesus at 30 silver pieces, which was approximately a third of this. So Mary's just poured out a $60,000 jar of perfume on Jesus, and Judas takes 20 grand as a a bribe to hand Jesus in. What Judas values, he, he doesn't value Jesus, he values money. Judas is the living lesson on this, on this that the Bible says so clearly. Uh, Matthew 6, 23, Jesus speaks, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Judas would have been standing there as Jesus spoke those words. The living lesson, you cannot serve God and money. Later on, 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul writes... Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, Judas looked the part. He valued Jesus somewhat, but when it came down to it, he undervalued Jesus. He failed to see the glory of this man. He failed to see that Jesus raises the dead. He's trying to serve God and money. Yeah, I'll serve Jesus and I'll serve money and money won. In in trying to serve both, he failed to serve God. But there's another response uh, and the the highlight response of this passage uh, here is, is Mary. Have a look again, verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 12, I think it is. Uh, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took a pint of pure nard and expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, let's just slow down here. Uh, first notice this wasn't just a regular feast it wasn't they were having dinner oh we're having dinner Jesus why don't you come along with your disciples this is a feast given in honor of Jesus Uh, it's a response to what he's he's done so I reckon Mary and Lazarus and Martha together they planned this they're siblings they all love Jesus Uh, there's no way they can pay Jesus back for what he's done They've got their brother back with them. Lazarus is living. He's reclining at the table. He doesn't smell. He's not decomposing. He was in the grave, four days dead. And now he's with them again. And they, well, what can we do? Well, let's, let, let's, let's give a feast. And Martha does what she does. She serves. That's, that's Martha. She's always around serving. That's, that's her love language. You know, she, she's a servant. She wants to serve. She just wants to feed Jesus. She knows that's not going to pay back. She just wants to do her bit. She wants to say thank you. But Mary's, ah, it's not quite enough. It's not quite enough. Uh, And so Mary, she she just feels how outrageous the gift is that Jesus has given her. Lazarus, he's at the table, he's eating. She's probably watching him interact with Jesus and think, wow. Can you imagine if it was your sibling or your child, someone in your family who was dead? and they're back with you now? What would you do for the person who brought them back? You just, you'd, you'd want to find the most extreme way to say thank you. You couldn't do enough for them, you'd do anything. And so she goes and grabs this jar of perfume, this exquisite, expensive, costly, rare perfume. She, she takes the best thing that she has what single thing do you have that's worth a year's wages that you can just pour out? Take take, take my house, take my car, I don't know, take my kidney. Like what? And she just takes it and says, I want to give this. And she, she recognises that this best thing that she has, it's only suitable for the worst part of Jesus, for his feet. It's like when John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That, that's that's the, the sort of attitude. she says, I, I'm so thankful, I'm so thankful, I will put my best on your worst, on your feet. And what's more, in this Jewish culture where Jewish women wore their hair bound, they would only unbound their hair in, in the presence of close family or their husband. She unbounds, uh, unbinds her hair, uh, really you know, humiliates herself in public And, you know, most women, my wife and daughters included, like having clean hair. It's usually one of the cleanest bits of you. And and this is a time where feet are dirty. They're in sandals. They walk. She takes her cleanest and wipes his filthiest. She just can't say thank you enough. This, This overwhelming gratitude. There's nothing she would not joyfully give. Not to pay... Not to say, I, I need to make it even, I need to pay Jesus back so I'm not in his debt, but just in thanks. So that, that's this, this third reaction to what Jesus has done for Lazarus. Three quite dramatically different reactions, the Pharisees, Judas and Mary. These three reactions, quite different to what Jesus has done. But, but we have so much more to respond to than simply the raising of dead Lazarus. I want to wind back to verse 49 where Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, he, he says something really profound without realising just how, how profoundly he's speaking. So they're discussing what are we going to do about Jesus and he says, the high priest, Caiaphas, spoke up. You know nothing at all. Do you not realise it's better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish? And here John makes a little comment. John comments, he did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. He is, of course, talking about the cross, The the place where Jesus died, not just for the Jewish nation, he wasn't just a Jewish saviour, but for all the scattered people, not just the Jewish nation, all the scattered people of God, that's that's us. See, Jesus didn't only raise someone from the dead. If he raised one of my daughters or one of my brothers, can you imagine how thankful you'd be? He didn't just raise someone, I can't believe I'm saying that, he didn't just raise someone from the dead, he died so that I might live. He took on His self what I deserved, the death, the punishment, the eternal judgment that I deserved so that I might live forever, so that I might be adopted as one of God's children. Not just to offer us life, but to offer life to everyone, even those who are most precious to us. And then he rose from the dead to prove that he he will raise us too. We have so much more to respond to than the Pharisees and Judas and Mary. But the question I want to land on us is, how will we respond to what Jesus has done? To the cross, to the resurrection, to his offer to take our sin, our punishment, our judgment and give us life. Will we respond like the Pharisees? Now, perhaps that's you. Perhaps you have an attitude a bit like the Pharisees and and you're thinking, you know, no matter matter what I see, no matter what I hear, no matter what evidence there is, I will not believe. I don't care what you show me. I'm not interested. Maybe you're here because someone dragged you. Uh, Maybe you're just here to shut up your friend who wanted you to come. I want to encourage you, if you're responding like the Pharisees, to open your mind and consider the evidence just consider the evidence please keep checking out who Jesus is and what he has to offer Uh, perhaps you're responding a bit like Judas now if you're anything like me you're going to say of course I'm not responding like Judas I would never sell Jesus for 30 silver coins Uh, I'd never sell Jesus out and I want us here to pause for a minute And consider the attitude that was lurking in Judas all along, the the attitude that gave birth to handing Jesus over. See, the attitude was there all along. It was expressing itself in small ways as he pinched money out of the coin bag. That's the same attitude that valued Jesus so lowly that he would sell him to die for $20,000. It's the same attitude that says to to Mary, what? Why would you waste that on Jesus? He's not valuable enough for that. That attitude was there all, all along. And there is a possibility that we might be undervaluing Jesus. Looking like we're part of Jesus' family, The Judas did. He was with the disciples, he's at the feast, he's doing miracles, he's serving, he's going to church. Are you undervaluing Jesus? Valuing him a bit, but not enough. What stuff comes up in life that gets bumped up the priority list over Jesus, over his priorities? Leisure, freedom, family, work, travel, my independence. It's possible to look the part. (laughs) Judas looked the part, he was one of the twelve. It's possible to look the part, but really, you're just doing what suits me at the time. And when the crunch point comes, when it comes to a decision, we value this other thing over Jesus. And the love of money is a big one. Not just in this passage, but in the whole Bible. In the New Testament, again and again, it shows us uh, to be one of, if not the biggest danger Uh, to lure us away from trusting Jesus is the love of money. Uh, In the parable of the soils, I'll read from Matthew's version. Um, Remember, there's four different types of soils. One of them is the weedy soil. What are the two weeds that are named? The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. Now, there are other things that can choke out your faith, but money is one of the two that are named. Or Jesus words Matthew 6 Judas would have heard these no one can serve two masters you'll hate the one and love the other devoted to one and despise the lover the other what's he talking about you cannot serve God and money what do you value your priorities or Jesus priorities Now, we we have to have a little word on the poor here. Caring for the poor particularly is a consistent mark of Jesus' followers. Uh, But it is not Jesus' key priority in this world. Loving others, caring for the poor, being generous to the poor, it is a consistent mark of what Jesus' followers do, but it is not Jesus' greatest concern for the world. His mission is to take eternal salvation to the world. Jesus is concerned to alleviate all suffering, especially eternal suffering, especially eternal suffering. And of course, as we go about Jesus' mission of bringing people to love and know him, we will not ignore the uh, physical afflictions. So generosity of the poor is one of the marks of the Christian, but for someone who truly understands what Jesus' death and resurrection mean, for someone who truly understands that eternal life is on offer, then the bulk, the lion's share of our generosity will go towards advancing Jesus' priority, to see more people join his family and those in his family to grow deeper and stronger in him. For someone who truly understands the value of what Jesus offers, that's where the lion's share of our generosity will go. Now, now back to what we value most and a bit of a diagnostic to work out has, has money got a bit of a, a, a hold on me? Do I value it too highly as Jesus dropped down? Uh, it's a question about what we're, what we're devoted to. Uh, a helpful diagnostic is uh, what, what can we afford? Asking this question, what can I afford? Uh, so if you're thinking to yourself when you say, can I afford that holiday? Maybe. Can I afford that sponsor child? Oh, I can afford the holiday not the sponsor child. I could afford the meals out, but I can't afford to support that missionary. And often what will go around in our heads, speaking from experience here, and we're in this together, it will go, oh, I wish I could afford that. I wish I could, I just can't. We're looking for what we say yes to. I can justify that. I can afford that. And what we say no to, and it will come out as a pattern. Can I afford a nice case of beer, a bottle of wine, organic food? but not training an MTS student? Can I afford the house I want, the car I want, the shed I want, the retirement I want, but I can't afford to help meet the church's needs? What what do we say yes to? What do we say no to? What, What do we, oh, I wish I could afford that, but I just can't. It's not saying that we can't spend money on these things. We can, but as a diagnostic right now in your life, what things can you afford to do? What things are valuable enough to you to say, yeah, I I value that enough to find the money. Yeah, yeah, that's what we say. We'll find a way, won't we? If we value it, we'll find a way to pay that bill. But what things get the no? What things say, look, I'd love to, but I just can't afford it at the moment. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes we can't afford to give to Jesus' priorities. But we should be interested in the patterns as a diagnostic. Now, I'm not hijacking this sermon to talk about money. It's right here in this passage. Judas is at the core of this passage, stealing money, criticising someone who's giving. And he takes the ultimate fall, a living, breathing example of the deadly danger of money. It's possible to look the part when it suits us, but really completely undervalue Jesus. Unlike Mary. And that's where we land in this passage, isn't it? Will you respond to Jesus like Mary? And it's really important to to say, first and foremost, we're responding to grace. That word grace is the word for undeserved generosity. We've been given something that we do not deserve, something innumerably large, unpayable. Eternal life, taking uh, our punishment, our sins, the escape that we could never hope to make, an adoption into God's family. That's what Jesus has done for us. And that's what happened for Mary. We're responding to grace, not to something that we're given that we need to earn. And when we truly see what Jesus has done and what he offers, we can't help but offer up our best. When we truly understand what Jesus has done, what he's given us, what Mary's done here, 60 grand, perfume on Jesus' feet, doesn't seem extreme. You go, that is beautiful because it matches. It it matches perfectly with what Jesus has done. We can't help to offer up our best. Now, money is, is a big part of that. It will be one of those things that we, we give up to serve Jesus, that we show we do love Jesus. We want to serve Him. We want to give Him that. It's one of those things most likely to seal our affection. And immediately, that's where Mary's mind went, isn't it? And, and I want to remind you, Mary's a faithful Jew. She's been giving her tithe. Actually, for the Jews of the day, it was more like 20 to 30% of their income uh, went to the synagogue. This is on top of that. This is what she saved on top of that giving. This is extra. And it's nothing. It's nothing for her. She would have given a 1,000 jars of nard if she had them. You get that impression from Mary. It's not enough. It's nothing compared to getting her brother back. Uh, Jesus told a parable that the kingdom of heaven, very short parable, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. In his joy, he sold all he had, everything, every last thing. Another parable about the man with the pearl found a great pearl at a great price, joyfully sells everything to get it. It's this joyful giving up in response to what Jesus has done and it's that attitude, that attitude of joy that would give anything, anything just to respond even slightly appropriately is what we see in Mary. Do we recognise what Jesus has done? Do we clearly see what he's given us, eternal life? He took our punishment on himself to purchase our freedom. Do Do we see the cost do we see the value and when we do see that will we respond appropriately what is high enough a cost what is valuable enough to give to jesus to say thank you giving up every friday arvo to teach kids at, about jesus at junior youth you know can you afford the time Teaching SRE through the week in schools, leading a home group, serving on a Sunday team, cooking for someone who's doing it tough. Can we afford the time? Can we afford the energy? Can you afford to commit to it, to say, I will be there? Calling your linked partner every week or, or getting to your home group, rain, hail or shine so that you might encourage someone else. C- can you afford to have that sort of attitude to give up that sort of time? giving some extra dollars to meet the needs of a missionary or a trainee or church. Will we value Jesus' priorities enough to say, yeah, I'll find the money, I'll find the time, I'll, I'll make it work. That's what we say about things that we truly value. Not as a burden, not because we should, uh, I, guess I, I guess I'll find the time, I have to, but as a joyful response, and maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, "I wish I felt like that, Liam. I wish I felt like Mary." That's the problem. I don't. I wish I felt like that. What's the sol- if you're feeling like that? What's the solution? Well, three things to do: look at your sin. Counterintuitive. Look at your sin. Look at how dark and deep and deserved you are of God's rejection. That's the first step. You've got to realise the debt, how far you are from earning, deserving to be in God's family. But don't get depressed, then look at the cross. Look at the cost, the price that was paid, paid in full for the sins of the world. And then look at the result, look at the life, the eternal life, now and forever. Fix your eyes, the Bible calls us, fix your eyes on Jesus, on what he has done, on where we're going with him. And as you look at those three things, your sin, the price Jesus paid, the the treasure he has given you, eternal life. As you do that, bit by bit, your values will shift. It's like looking at a magazine at advertising. Uh, The more I look at the brand new boat magazines, the more I value buying a brand new boat. It's what happens? The eyes are a window to the heart, to the soul. Look at this, not that. Your values will shift more and more. Your joy will grow bit by bit. And as that happens, I wanna encourage you to find something extravagant to do. Find something like Mary extravagant, like a jar of nard extravagant, with your time, with your money, with your commitments. Something beautiful, something that others, even other Christians might look at and go, "Wow, that's a bit much. Because that's what people were thinking about Mary. Jesus shows us that she nailed it. And do it. Don't just think about, oh, yeah, I could do that. Do it. Once you're feeling that joy grow, act on it. Sell everything for that treasure. Break the the whole jar. Let down your hair in public, kind of extravagant. And with tears of joy, worship Jesus. I'm going to pray, please join me, that we would do this. Father God, we can't even comprehend just how much you loved us, just how costly it was for you to purchase our lives as your children. As we look at Jesus, we pray that you would help us to see how glorious he is, not just because he raised Lazarus, but because he willingly went to the cross taking my sin, my judgment, my punishment, everything that I deserved on himself and offering up life in exchange, adoption, glory. As we look at the promise and the hope of eternal life that begins now as we trust in you, we pray that we would see and even begin to taste it now. And we pray that you would overwhelm us and help us to feel the joy that Mary felt, the kind of joy that looks at the most precious thing we have and counts it as nothing compared to knowing you. Please help us to see that. Help us to trust you. Help us to respond appropriately. We thank you for this amazing grace in Jesus' name. Amen okay well uh as usual we've got a question time now ellis is going to whiz up and grab the mic stand so if you've got a question get ellis's attention he'll even stay at a 1.5 meter distance and hold it out for you um thanks ellis um yeah questions any questions about the passage sue
1: one's probably more a statement but the second's a question i'm just really also blown away by the fact that mary is there pouring all that perfume on Jesus' feet and she's not saying, well, look at me, look at what I'm doing here.
0: She's Mm. just
1: humbly sitting at his feet and doing what she feels. The second thing is, do you think there's a connection between the fact that she's pouring expensive perfume on his feet to the fact that that doesn't happen at the burial?
0: Mm. because jewish custom yeah, yeah. yeah yes yes thanks sue so uh you've picked up and actually jesus pointed that out so a really good uh thing to notice so jesus little comment to judas was leave her alone um, yeah. and then th- that statement's a little bit unclear about what it means she was saving it for my burial uh what's going on but absolutely jesus he did get anointed with the embalming spices by nicodemus Uh, our mate and Joseph of Arimathea um, but he missed out on that perfume which is why the Marys went down to do it after the Sabbath. Um, So I think, yeah absolutely, really good pickup. What's happening here is I don't think Mary knows that's what she's doing. I don't think she's thinking, oh Jesus is going to be crucified in a few days, we're not going to get a chance to anoint him so I'll do it now. I think this is a Caiaphas moment that God's using her action in this case, a wonderful action. He uses Caiaphas' horrendous statement, let's kill Jesus, better that he dies than the nation perish. He uses that as a prophecy. He uses Mary's beautiful gift to say, hey, not anointed at his burial. I'll just get it done a few days early. I, I think that's exactly what's going on. And, and this is far more than even the richest perf- person would have been anointed with. It's a real a king's burial. Yeah, thanks, Sue. Any other questions? Carly.
1: Um, So my question is, um, like, so what she's done is so generous. Mm. Uh, I feel like in the West, <laughs> I don't know, I just, I don't see that very often, even mm. Christians, like mature Christians. Yep. Um, so where is, I guess, the grace in that and also the like the faith like the boldness to do that and also not be then depending on other people like
0: yep because yep. you're
1: giving too much
0: yeah thanks Carly um, <coughs> I think you managed to squeeze about six questions in there but no, that that's really really helpful so if I'm hearing you right in the West it doesn't seem like we see that kind of generosity the kind of $60,000 at once uh, lavished on Jesus? Um, why, why don't we see it? Uh, and second part of the question, where does the faith that we would need to be that kind of generous come from? Where, where do we get the kind of faith to be able to be that generous? Did I sort of get those questions right? We don't see it. And the grace. And the grace, yeah. Um, first, uh, yeah, I think, I think you're right. So uh, I, I don't think we see that generosity much. A couple of reasons. One is, it's uh, sort of what Sue said about Mary wasn't making a big fuss, but Jesus was there in person. Um, now, I happen to know that there are people, even in this room, who've been incredibly generous, who didn't make a fuss about it. Um, so, uh, just personally to us, when, uh, when Lucy's dad got really sick in England... And we, we didn't have enough for one airfare, let alone the whole family to go. We had one couple say, Hey, here's our here's our credit card, book the flights for the whole just do it. And if other people want if want to chip in, hey, by all means pay us back if you want to, but you go. Now I've got a few kids in case you notice, that was ten grand in flights. Um, just just and, and that wasn't to Jesus, <laughs> that's just to get Lucy and her family back to see a dad. And you know, when Churches need to be built. We, we get gifts like that. Uh, our church, uh, when we did the appeal for India and for Bishkek earlier in the year for food parcels, the regular giving doubled in that month. We got as much as what normally comes in again. And that giving didn't go down, by the way. That still came in. We just just doubled it because we can. Yeah, that's not quite 60 grand each, but neither is Jesus here at a banquet. Um, so, one I want to say, some t- there is that sort of generosity going on, and it's often unseen, and that's appropriate. And when we celebrate it, it's best if we can celebrate it anonymously, so that those, pers- those people, they don't receive their rewards now, but are rewarded by the Father. But the other thing is, we are so wealthy, we have so much to spare, and I'll tell you what, there is a lot more all of us could give before we're dependent on others. You know, um, so uh, I, if you think most, most things were on a pendulum, we, we react one way or the other way. Um, here in the West, I don't think we're in danger of being so generous that we will become a church of people who have got no money and we can't feed our kids and we're dependent. I don't think that's where we are. We're not on that side of the pendulum. We're probably more over the other and the things that we consider to be necessities are actually luxuries. So, um, yes, there is a point at which, you know, don't, don't give away your rent money when you owe it. You have signed a contract. You should, you should pay that. You should honour that. Perhaps find a cheaper house to rent so that you can give more money away, but you pay your rent because you've said you will. But I tell you what, we're not... I don't think most of us are there. I think we probably need a nudge from the other end of the pendulum. Um, so that's the first one. Where do we get the grace and the faith uh, to be that kind of generous? Uh, Look, look at the cross. Look at what Jesus has done. Um, uh, It is sometimes helpful to look at other Christians, Uh, as Hebrews said. You know, surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Uh, You know, the writer of Hebrews. I reckon it was Paul. We don't know, but he lists all these people. Look at these people of faith who trusted God. So that's what you need if you're going to give away a big chunk of money. You're saying, I'm going to trust you, God. That, hey, in a couple of years when I might need this money. And it's gone. I gave it away. I'm going to trust you, God, that you'll provide for the future. That, that's what happens whenever we give, especially money away. We we need to trust God. Um, so, yep. Look look to the cross. Look to what Jesus has done. And you'll see that whatever figure or time we could give, yeah, it's nothing. But also look at look at how trustworthy God is. Uh, and I, I can speak from our personal experience that um, we 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 have been generous. We've given at different points. L- significant chunks of our assets especially in our you know when we didn't have so many assets sort of given most of what your own away and God has looked after us every time every time and the more that happens the more confident you become oh look at what God has done again and again and again and that that's what gives us the I guess the faith and the grace I think that God God keeps his promises um, and and he will look after us he'll give us what we need maybe not what we want but, um, yeah, he'll look after us. It's a long, longer conversation, but that's a start. Thanks, Carly. qjan We'll make this the last one because we do have kids coming back in just a couple of minutes. Um, but, yeah, last question. It's Thanks, also then. a challenging question. So oh, then. getting a big one, eh?
1: Uh, querying. So it seems to me the response from the different people is based on a heart attitude. And so the Pharisees response is based on their attitude towards Jesus at Mm. the time and in a sense is the appropriate response because of their attitude based on their heart attitude um, and their posture towards God. So in some way regulated by the work of God in the lives of people so we can Mm. only really respond in so much as I mean this is showing my Calvinist leanings but I suppose We can only respond rightly based on what God is doing in our heart at the time which which takes us to the application of Mm. look to the cross look to your sin yep you know uh and so my question is are there seasons in our life where we can be doing that like preaching to our heart daily you know reading our bibles Mm. trying to awaken our senses and yet God uses that as a form of discipline that your heart's just not there Mm. and what do you do during those seasons?
0: No, nah, not a big question at all, yeah. thanks, <laughs> thanks, thanks Ben, um, yeah, and I, I think you all heard that, I won't repeat it, um, absolutely, and we, we looked on this as we looked at assurance, as we've looked through John, that God, ultimately, we, we can't change our hearts, Isaiah, Ezekiel, the whole New Testament says, no, we, we, we have hearts of stone, God is the one who gives the new heart. Um, I'm, I'm often encouraged by the father, and I can't remember which gospel it is, someone here will know, um, the father of the, the boy who was, uh, I think he was possessed by a demon, and, and it wouldn't come out, and he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Uh, Matthew 9, thank you. Uh, look it up. Fantastic little passage, because it's this expression That Jesus honours, so so it's, uh, he he, he responds well to that expression of, I believe, help me in my unbelief. Now, what does that mean? I think what we're getting encapsulated is, I desperately want to trust you. And I'm struggling to. And and maybe it's what some of us are feeling, have been feeling, will be feeling about what we see in Mary. uh, That says, I want to feel like that, and I just don't. So what am I going to do about that? Now, it, it, and that's the moment. Do we come to Jesus and say, help me, help me in my unbelief? I believe, help me. Or do we throw up our hands and go, ah, if you want me to change my heart, you'll change my heart, and now I'm just going to go do my own thing. So so we, we, we can respond to that. So we, we trust God, pray, Lord, change my heart, renew in me. The Psalms are a great asset in it as well. Search the Psalms for the Psalms that pray that god will do something in me pray them invest and and wait wait on the lord but invest don't wait on the lord you know just sitting back we're called to pursue him uh someone to meditate to drink deeply um and we don't have a promise that will happen overnight we'll get there might not till you die and get to heaven but we'll get there push in and and that's the right right response and we might finish that up there